Every time I hear somebody read that scripture, I think, what in the world am I doing trying to preach on this passage? But uh, I'm sure you identified the three main characters in the chapter. We start with what I call a very complicated woman. Years ago, someone gave me a book as a gift, and the title of the book, it was a big, thick book. The title was, What Everything Men Know About Women. And I opened it up, and every single page was blank. Because men will say women are complicated. We just can't figure them out. And women just say men aren't very smart because they can't figure us out. Regardless of whether that's true or not, this, this woman in this text is a very complicated woman. There's, there's several levels of meaning. You'll notice it says a great and wondrous sign appears in heaven. This woman, this, she's full of symbolic meaning. Uh, I think as a sign, she has multiple ways of, of understanding what she symbolizes. A sign is something that points us beyond itself to, to, to other things, to greater things. Notice in our text, the woman is a sign, the dragon is a sign, but the child is a child. We'll get back to that. It's important to note that. But, but one of the, the things I want you to see, first of all, a way that the woman is a sign, the woman is a sign as Israel. Look at her description in verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, if you were a Jew, maybe that, maybe that just sounds like a descriptive thing for you, but if you were Jewish and had grown up and understanding the Old Testament, that would bring into your mind immediately something that happened early on in Jewish history. In Genesis 37, 9, Joseph has a dream and, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? See, in, in Joseph's dream, the parents were the moon and the sun and the 12 brothers, the, tw- well, the 11 plus him, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were the stars. And she's, this is a woman standing with the sun around her on the moon with a crown of 12 stars. For Jews, it was obvious this woman is meant to represent Israel. And if you follow the prophets, there, there are times when it refers to Israel as a woman in, in pain, trying to give birth. In verse 2, it says this woman is pregnant, in pain, about to give birth. If you look at Isaiah 26, 17, it says, As a woman with child is about to give birth, and she writhes, and she cries out in her pain. Sorry about that, Rachel. Uh, to bring that so close to home. So were we in your presence, O Lord. Israel says we are this woman trying to give birth. And, and the idea is, is in Scripture is that Israel is going to be the place that the Messiah comes from. Israel, the Jewish people, would give birth. And in this way, the woman here represents the people of God up to the time of Jesus. But we also need to see that the, the woman is Mary. As I said earlier, the woman and the dragon are a sign. They point beyond themselves. Uh, The child is a child. Now you can figure out this woman who gives birth to a child. It's not very hard to figure out that it's, it's in some way Mary, this young Jewish girl giving birth to the Messiah. And what happens in Mary is really a centering of the whole Jewish history. It's like the, the curve of an hourglass. Here's, here's the Jewish nation going to give birth to the Messiah, but it all comes to a point in Mary because the Jewish nation doesn't always fulfill their, their calling. They don't always surrender to God. But in Mary, in Luke 138, you hear her say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
See, Luke uses her as an example of what the Jewish race was meant to do. She's, she's this point of surrender and faithfulness. And God blesses her by using her birth to bring about this child, or using her, her pregnancy to bring about this child. And so the woman, first of all, represents the period of God up to the time of Jesus, Israel. She also represents the people of God uh, during the time of Jesus, Mary. But you can also see the woman as the church. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Some of your translations will say 42 months. Some of them will say time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. Remember those numbers of journey from last week. We said when, when the scripture uses 42 or three and a half or 1,260, the idea is there's a journey happening. God has started something and there's this process going on. I'm realizing now the camera being backwards, I should be starting here and working this way, but that's okay. There's this process and at the beginning and the end, both God is acting. And this woman is, is a symbol of the people of God after Jesus as well, the church. It makes sense when you look down in verse 13, down to 17. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half of time out of the serpent's reach. See, it, it, this, this whole idea of the church being this woman who is taken care of, who, who those that wait upon the Lord mount up with wings like eagles. She's, she's protected for this period of this process, this journey, because the church itself is giving birth to something. Makes sense of what Paul says in Galatians 4. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul was saying that in the church, Jesus is given birth as well. The, the, the descendants of Jesus, the church itself, gives birth to those who will follow. It's a complicated woman. It's not, not, not as complicated as the passage last week, but there's these three images built into this one. Now let's move on to the second character, the second sign, and we'll look at the coming of the dragon. It, it, it comes so fast you can hardly even take in the woman and you see this dragon in verse 3 and 4. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Very ominous in appearance and it's a very revealing description. Uh, it says in verse 3 and 4, Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Now red is, is the color of conflict. If you remember in chapter 5, the horseman that came out, one of the four horsemen that was red, it said he was given power to make men slay each other. This, this red dragon has this conflict-laden color. It has seven heads. A number of heads are, are symbols of authority in apocalyptic literature and, literature, and you've got seven of them, which is complete. There's a complete authority there. Uh, ten horns. Horns are a sign of strength and power, like the horns of a bull. Ten is another number of completeness. And seven crowns on his heads, which shows he's not only got authority and power, he's wealthy. He's got, he's got resources. And in verse 4, it says, The dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Another example of his power. I want you to remember, though, with the trumpets, a third 
meant that it was powerful and it was terrible, but it was limited. Once again, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky. His, his, his authority and his destruction is limited. And it says, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born, which helps us to understand what the dragon wants. The dragon wants to devour the child. The same verb here as in the last chapter, in chapter 10, where it told um, John to take the scroll and eat it, to devour it. Exact same word. What John was told to do with the scroll, the devil wants to devour and consume this child. He's out to destroy Jesus. Back in chapter 9, verse 11, it talks about part of these people coming to bring judgment, and they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, which both mean destroyer. The dragon sets himself up as opposed to everything that Jesus is, and his ultimate goal is to destroy. And see, that, that's why in our own life, sin is such an issue. We get this really mixed up. Sin and God not wanting us to sin, we, we kind of feel like it's a control issue. He's telling us not to do this. He's trying to control our behavior. And, and it's, sin's not about control. Sin and, and the call not to sin is a love thing for God. He knows that left to ourselves, Satan will destroy us. That sin will kill us. And we, we know that about big sins like drug use, addiction, sexual sin, murder, those kind of, yeah, those are horrible sins and they'll destroy us. But the same is true of those smaller sins that lying will actually destroy us. Gossip, unforgiveness, bitterness, right? That's what the dragon does. And that's why sin is important because the dragon will come to seek to destroy anything that Jesus is doing. He's fierce. It, it would be a very depressing story if all we saw was a woman giving birth and a dragon ready to devour the child and destroy it. If it wasn't for the third symbol, it'd be a very depressing passage. The third symbol <laughs> is what I call the easiest symbol in the entire book of Revelation, the child. Who's the child? Yes, the Sunday school answer, the child is Jesus. No real surprises there. It says in 12, 5, this child who will rule the, Asian, the nations with an iron scepter. When you see Jesus later in chapter 19, verse 15, it says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. This is a, a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, believe it or not, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This idea of the Messiah who would come. This child is obviously Jesus. And even though the dragon is waiting to devour him, it says he is caught up to the throne of God. Now, it, it, in our New Testament mindset, we think of Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, called up to heaven, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our central character. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus. So this child showing up, protected, 
taken up to heaven is, is Jesus. And his birth makes things happen. Something changes. Everything begins to change at the point of his birth. The, the, we see from this point on uh, an underwhelming battle and the victory. After he's born and caught up to heaven in verses 7 to 9, there's this battle in heaven. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. That great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, I don't know about you, but something's unique about this battle and I've called it underwhelming. You know, as, as we read through Revelation, you see these vibrant, vibrant images. You see people clothed with the sun. You see seals opened up that will unleash chaos. You see a, a slain lamb or a lamb looking like it's slain sitting on the throne that invokes the worship of all creation. You see locusts that sting like scorpions. You see horses coming in judgment with tails like serpents. You see all this vivid imagery. And yet when it comes to this battle in heaven, there's a real lack of drama. Satan is, is fighting Michael and his angels and he's just not strong enough and they, they kick him out. For all this power that he describes in the dragon, the battle is really anticlimactic. Michael and his angels promptly throw him out of heaven. He's been defeated. And it takes up very little space in the book. You know, we, we've seen this building, 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 this clash of kingdoms. Oh my goodness, this horrible thing. And when the battle actually occurs, it's over as quickly as it starts. This, this same pattern, we'll see it in a few weeks, is repeated in that famous battle of Armageddon. People talk about, oh, the battle of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. What? This horrible battle. In Revelation 16, this is what it says about the battle of Armageddon. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. It's, it's not a battle at all. Everybody shows up and it's over. You see, the underwhelming nature of the battle shows the victory. And then in, in verse 9, we see the defeat and the relocation of the dragon. He's going down. And I, I love, just listen to the text. If you're seeing it on the screen, I've bolded. I want you to keep this. There's this drumbeat throughout chapter, you know, verses 8 to 12. Just listen. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. There's once. The great dragon was hurled down twice. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray three times. He was hurled to the earth. And his angels with him. And then I heard the loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses him before our God day and night, number four, has been hurled down again. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because, number five, the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, number six, because he knows that his time is short. This whole idea is the devil is on his way down. The defeat and the relocation of the dragon. And as you look at scripture, you know, the earliest, what, what we think is the oldest story in scripture is, is this picture of Job. And in Job, you see Satan coming before the throne in the throne room of God and he's accusing. That's what he does here too, right? He's accusing. 
But in Jesus, in the birth of this baby that, that the dragon wants to devour, everything changes. Jesus says in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like, like lightning from heaven. And in Revelation 12, 10, it says, now, now is this time. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Jesus, when he came preaching, he said, the time is at hand. His first sermon in Nazareth, he reads this passage from Isaiah about proclaiming freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind. And then he says, today, this passage is brought to fulfillment in your hearing. You see, the dragon was defeated by the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And so verses 10 to 12 really explain the world that these believers who got this and us today that we're living in, that Satan knows the end of the line is near. And that's why things are difficult. That's why it says, woe to you and the earth and the sea because he's come down to you. The victory is already done. But God is waiting compassionately to bring others in. We'll talk about that when we close in a minute. But, but before we get to that, I just want you to see that the text here has a little twist of irony. And I don't want you to miss it. All throughout the book, what we have seen are, are things happening in heaven that have ripples and implications on earth. A throne room in heaven with this slain lamb on the throne that inspires this whole world, all of creation to worship. Uh, a scroll with seven seals that's opened in heaven and begins to create this conflict of the kingdoms all throughout the earth. Trumpets in heaven that are blown that unleash these judgments that pour out destruction and, and devastation economically, spiritually, physically, all over the earth. But the irony of what we see here is, really for the first time, an event on earth, a baby is born, and it impacts what's going on in heaven. There's a battle in heaven. It's, it's a subtle shift, and it's a reminder that what happens here matters. That, that in the coming of Jesus, something it, it, it sanctified our very existence that what we do now as the followers of the Lamb has an impact at a broad, broad uh, reach. It says in verse 9 of our text, that ancient serpent. It's, it's talking about the Garden of Eden there in Genesis 3.15 where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, God changes things based on activities we do here. That's, that's the irony of it. But what, what I want to end with is you, you see where we live where they lived. The, the, the struggle, the fact that the victory has been won, but why does the kingdom look this way? Why, why is it, as, as God waits, that we struggle? Why is the suffering so present? And, and I think our text says that, and you're going to love the alliteration here, defeated dragons make life difficult. Defeated dragons make life difficult. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That, that's where we live. The victory has been won, but the, the, the dragon is, is it's his last blast of fury. We see it in the text. Verse 12 says, Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus. See, that's the answer to our question. The question for them and for us is if the kingdom has come, then why doesn't it look like it? 
And verses 10 to 12 say it's here. But God's still waiting to bring others to himself. And the suffering of the church that happens is not a sign of defeat. It's actually a sign of victory. The suffering of the church isn't a sign of Satan's power. It's a sign of his defeat. It's his last hurrah. While God waits for others to come, he pours out everything he has against us, even though we're protected, like we've said, on both sides of death. Now, what exactly are his methods? We'll wrap up looking at his methods and what we do about it. In the text, he uses three things, accusation, deception, and the fear of death. I I think he's not very creative, but he uses these three tools masterfully. In verse 15, it says there's a flood that comes out of his mouth. What is it that's coming out of his mouth in in chapter 12, verse 10? It says he's the, the, the accuser of our brothers, accusation. The Hebrew word for Satan literally means the accuser. And and, and the Greek word we get devil from, diabolos, literally means the slanderer, the one who speaks untruth against others. And it says in verse 10 of our chapter that he, he, he accuses the brothers day and night. It's constant. And that's one of the ways Satan comes against us by accusing. He, he says, why would God want you? Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. Look at the mistakes you've made. And you hear that voice. We've all had that voice in our head where we fail and we're just like, oh, I can't believe I've done it again. And Satan says, yeah, you've done it again. Man, why would God ever want you? It's an accusation. That's one of his greatest methods. And the truth is, God does want you. God wanted you so much he came in flesh and died and gave himself for you. Satan just wants you to feel so overwhelmed by your guilt. He wants to keep your focus on what you've done wrong to keep you from drawing near to the one who accepts you and loves you and forgives you. How many of you have thought someone was mad at you and you felt that, oh, only later to find out it was just a misunderstanding and the the freedom and the relief that comes out of that? Well, Satan will, will make you think God is mad at you. I feel like the church has done that to the world sometimes. We just make the world think that God hates them when the truth is it says God so loves the world. He uses accusation. We also, I would, just a sideline of this, be careful when we accuse others. (laughs) We're using his tools. Don't jump to conclusions about the actions of other people because we don't know what's underneath that. The second thing he uses is deception. It says in verse 9, he leads the whole world astray. Literally, he deceives. And he will try to get you to miss the truth of Jesus. He will try to deceive you about the grace, the love, the forgiveness, the restoration of God. He'll convince you that Christianity is all about you and your needs. About your right to be together, your right to have public worship services, whatever. He will make Christianity out to be a political cause instead of a a relationship with the God of the universe that, that leads you to sacrifice your life for those around you. He'll convince you it's a set of doctrines and beliefs to fight over and argue instead of a relationship with God. And he'll tell you there's so much to be afraid of because he is, as the scripture says, the father of lies. He will seek to deceive. And, and he'll want you to keep things in the dark. He'll say, you don't want people to know that. You don't want even God to know that. Instead of letting you bring it out into the light where God can actually expose and heal those things. The third thing that he uses is the threat of death. He wants to scare you. He stands there waiting to devour you, to chase you, to incite fear in you, a fear of losing something. If I follow Jesus, if, I, if I'm honest about my brokenness, I'll, I'll, I'm afraid I'll get hurt, I'll lose. You know, even in the garden, that's what he said. Eve, you know, 
you won't surely die. God's trying to keep something from you. Take that fruit. He, he wants to incorporate fear into your life. At, a few years ago, four years ago now, I had this little medical thing called a heart attack, which was a little surprise for me. I didn't have that in my daytimer when I got up that Wednesday morning. But the, the funniest thing for me about coming out of that, like I, you, I, I was fine coming out of it. The doctors did what they needed to do and I feel great. But for about a year after that, I, I felt this fear that at any moment, like I, I thought, I kept thinking, I got up that morning, I didn't plan to have a heart attack, and I, I could have I gone like that. And, and I remember having to fight with that fear in the back of my head, this fear of death, until finally I said, okay, I can't carry it anymore, God. If, and, and, and over time, I've come to a place where, okay, great. You know, if I have a heart attack before the end of this sermon, I'm sorry, everybody, that I did it live on camera, but uh, I, that's okay. God, God is the one that's taking care of me, and he's taking care of my family, and he's, he, he's going he's gonna to see us through this. There, there is no fear of death for the believer, right? We're safe on both sides of death. And that's where the whole of Revelation is this message that regardless of the circumstance, Satan cannot take anything from you. There is nothing to fear. He tried to kill Jesus on the cross and Jesus overcame. Jesus showed us the path to overcoming. That's where we'll end today. Looking at this verse 11 of chapter 12. I think this is the central verse of the whole book. They overcame him. Remember that verse overcome? Seven times in the seven letters to the churches, it says it's a calling to overcome. Remember? And in the very middle one, it says to overcome means to keep the deeds of Jesus, to do what he did. And in verse 11, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Three, three ways that we overcome. Number one is our blood bought forgiveness. You know, Satan's right when he accuses us. We are sinners. We are broken. We are failures. But he's also wrong because we've been forgiven. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, that this slain lamb came to bring us forgiveness. And, and not, we're not separated from God. We're deeply loved. We're deeply broken, yes, but we're deeply loved. In him, we are the righteousness of God, and it's been done for us. It's not that we have to do it. It's been done. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, a past act. And not just for you. Remember I touched on when you're accusing others, be careful. Remember them. They've been bought by the same blood you've been bought by. Don't hold a grudge. Extend forgiveness. There's no reason to withhold grace from others. Second, they overcome by the word of their testimony. The testimony of what God has done. Testimony is what you tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. And John is reminding them of Jesus' victory and, and how their experience in this situation is so much like his journey to the cross. There's this suffering and death and humiliation and struggle. And yet victory comes through that. God was faithful to Jesus and God will be faithful to them. The word of their testimony, they're, they're speaking it out that even in death, God is faithful. And they can do that. Because of a promise greater than fear. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Jesus says, you know, whoever wants to follow me should deny himself and follow me. Whoever holds on to his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's, 
That's the irony of it all. If we're afraid of death, if we're afraid to let go, if we're afraid of struggle, we tend to, to grasp. But it says these, these people who overcame did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, so they let it go. We have to realize, even though at times it seems paradoxical, in losing our lives to Jesus, it's actually when we find what we really need. It's this victory that comes in the face of, of what seems like sure defeat. And yet God loves and grace. It, it, it comes to us, this blood-bought forgiveness, this word of our testimony as we share what God has done for us, and this letting go of our lives, not afraid of death. It's, it's into that situation that we find what we're looking for. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this first of three chapters, which show pictures that are the very heart of the revelation of who you are. This, this conflict between this defeated dragon and the church, this, this stress and pressure that he tries to put on uh, in his last stand. And we know that his defeat is sure. We know it's already done. We know that, that, that we are safe and sealed by your Holy Spirit. We know that we are, are set free by the, the blood that you shed for us. We're forgiven. That we have no reason to fear. God, we just thank you for that truth. And I pray that we can live that out in an in a, in a unusual world, in a, in a time of pandemic, in a time when fear and accusation and deception run rampant. Help us to cling to your truth, realizing that the victory is won. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.